Very good. Well, uh, winter is coming fast, is it not? The leaves are already changing color. It's starting to get colder in the morning. And uh, so me and my wife are anxious to get out and do as much hiking as we possibly can. And uh, one of the things that we have learned in hiking is that there's a common courtesy or an etiquette that exists on the trails that you're hiking. Because when you go up, there's other people who are either going up or coming back down. And, and as you're passing, usually there's an etiquette where one steps off and, you know, you say, hi, how you doing? You know, have a good hike, all that kind of stuff. You greet them. But also in hiking, if you come across a uh, treacherous area, or perhaps maybe you see a predator, uh, like a cougar off in the distance up in a tree, or, or a bear somewhere, or uh, a moose, or something like that, usually it's proper etiquette that you tell the people you're passing, hey, we passed by a bear about a mile that way, just so you know. And so that's proper etiquette, and it's because it's out of a general care that you don't want somebody to be caught off guard, surprised, and jumped and attacked. You want them to be alert and to be aware to be ready. And so in the church, there should be, there should exist a common courtesy or an etiquette for us as we're passing one another each week, as we're warning each other about sin. Sins in our culture, sins in our neighborhood, uh, possibly sins in our own life that we need to share with other people. And that's because, and that should be, out of just a common courtesy or love or care for others, that they aren't caught off guard, that they are aware of what's lurking around the corner. And so as part of that sentiment, uh, as we started last week, I wanted to talk about sins. And last week we talked about the fact that we should hate sin because sin, all sin, is ultimately rebellion against God. 1 John 3, 4 tells us everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And ultimately pride, which pride says that I am the God of my own life, I make the rules, I determine what is right, what is wrong. Ultimately pride and a lack of faith, distrust, distrusting God's word, are the driving factors that lead to all kinds of sin and rebellion. And sin is not something small to just be glossed over or just to consider. Or even when we praise God and we thank God that our sins are in our past, that they're forgiven, that they've been thrown to the bottom of the ocean and forgotten by God, that He is redeeming us, He is saving us. Even though that is true, it doesn't mean we don't stop talking about sin or working on our righteousness. Because Sin has a great cost. It costs us that perfect paradise with God. It costs us death and chaos and decay in this world. Everything that we see that is decaying, our bodies, the world around us, all those things are a result of sin. It was a great cost. But the greatest cost is that God himself came down out of his love for us and Jesus Christ, his son, and he died on the cross, the perfect man. And that's what sin does, is it takes a perfect person or a perfect thing like Jesus Christ 
knew no sin, who loved people selflessly, who worked miracles to heal the sick, who cared for the poor. I mean, he lived the ideal, perfect life. And what did sin do? Sin arrested him and nailed him to a cross. An innocent man. Sin is very costly. But thankfully for Christ, thanks be to Christ, that he did die so that we might be saved from our sins. So we put our full hope and trust in him. And even though he promises us that he will absolve and that he will forgive all of our sins and that we can be reckoned as righteousness before him and go to heaven, it doesn't mean that we simply go on living like we always have. Being passive about sin, justifying our sin. No, and in the words, in the words of Paul, may it never be so. May we constantly seek repentance. So God has put it on the church and every believer, every one of us who has tasted and seen the glory of Jesus Christ and tasted his salvation and have that deep hope within our heart that when we die we'll be with him in paradise. He has put it on every one of us to turn from our sins, to repent from our sins, and to preach a gospel of forgiveness, of repentance to the church and to the world. And I promised you last week uh, that we're going to start getting into some of these lists. We're going to identify what sin is. And, and that's ultimately uh, what God put on my heart to share months ago, that I wanted to walk through and clearly identify what sins are. Last week we covered some of the pre- preliminary features of what the Bible teaches about sin. And this week we do have some more of those preliminary features to cover but we are going to get that list rolling, and it's going to roll into next week as well. If you notice here, it says part one. Usually that indicates there's a part two. And so today uh, I will be addressing at least the, the one sin that is on the top of my list that every single believer needs to be aware of and needs to repent from. And then as we roll into next week, we'll look into some more of those sins that have saturated our culture and has even infiltrated some of our churches. And so, with that said, let's say a word of prayer, and then let's talk about sin together. Father in heaven, we delight in you, we rejoice in you, we give you all praise, honor, glory. To you it is due, Father, you are greater than all. You are the creator, we are the creation, and so we submit to you. We bend our knees to you alone, because you alone are worthy of all of our praise, of our faith, of our desire. God, we long for you, we long for your truth, we long for your righteousness, we long for your kingdom. And Father, let me just say, I confess to you that I am a sinner. I fall short of the perfect standard. I miss the mark. I'm a sinner. And I thank you, God, for forgiving me of my sins. I thank you for washing me clean, making me new, giving me a hope and a promise of heaven with you. 
Father, help us to be humbled this morning. Help us come to recognition of the truth that you are God and we are not. That we submit to your rules, we don't make the rules. So, Father, help each and every one of us to come to the right understanding of your words and what we're supposed to do. Thank you for every eye who sees, ear who hears this morning. And I pray if there is hearts that are cold, you would open them up to your truth, to your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first preliminary item I wanted to cover in continuation from last week is the fact, uh, or to ask the question actually, uh, are all sins equal? Is, is there equality amongst sins? Or are some sins worse than others? Uh, are some sins sins that we should talk about more often than others? I think people often debate and try to categorize the severity of sin. Well, yeah, I sin, but at least I'm not doing what you do. Right? We compare, we contrast, we make ourselves feel good, even in our what we would consider a minuscule sin. Because at least I'm not doing the big sins. Yeah, I'm doing a whole host of little sins, but as long as I avoid the big sins, that's okay. But when we look at Scripture, especially as it pertains to our salvation and our relationship with God, James uh, writes in James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has uh, become guilty of all of it. So when you consider in terms of our salvation, and in terms of our standing with God, committing any sin, whether you would consider it to be a minuscule sin or a major sin, the scripture says that you have broken it all. You, you have broken that relationship with God. You have not met his perfect standard, and therefore you are deserving of eternal separation from him. So in terms of salvation, there is no difference. But you steal, tell a white lie. And so in all that way, all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And all of us are deserving of eternal separation from Him. But there's no sin, likewise, there's no sin too great that God can't forgive. All sins equally condemn us, but God can forgive all sin. The Bible speaks, however, of an unforgivable sin known as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Many of you have heard of this sin. Many of you have wrestled with what this means. This is often been called the unforgivable sin. Uh, growing up, and maybe, maybe you've heard this too, growing up, many people said, Suicide is the unforgivable sin. And when I was young, I thought, you know, I was scared into never even going there, never even thinking about that, having the idea that if anybody committed suicide and we were attending their funeral, that they were burning in hell. That was the idea that was planted into my head. But as I searched the scriptures, as I went through Bible college, as I discussed that with other people, we it comes to find the Bible, the Bible never says that suicide is the unforgivable sin. So it's hard to believe that any 
true believer with the joy and rejoicing of the Lord in their heart would come to such conclusions, but yet the Bible never said that. But the Bible does say that the unforgivable sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so what is that? Well, first of all, when Jesus was walking on earth and he was performing miracles and he was doing all kinds of good, the Pharisees were jealous of Christ. They came trying to accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of demons. And essentially, all this good work that you're doing is influenced and empowered by evil itself. The source of you, Jesus Christ, is evil. And that's how you're able to do all these things. Matthew 12, 31 through 32, Jesus responds. He says, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. And the author of the book of Hebrews refers to this same thing in Hebrews chapter 6. He says, It is impossible in the case of those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. He's talking about the same thing. Uh, the prophet Isaiah spoke of the mindset of one who has a seared conscience, who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is something that these Pharisees were guilty of. It's because they witnessed and saw and were in the presence of God himself who was working miracles to help heal, save, people. And despite the fact that they were amongst Christ, they were in the presence of Christ, and they were witnessing these things, and for them to come to the conclusion that not only Jesus was evil, but that the source of his power to heal was evil, the work of the Holy Spirit was evil. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, if anybody gets to that point where they've actually come They've tasted, they've seen, they've experienced, not necessarily meaning that they've actually come to a place of, of belief in Christ and repentance and receiving salvation, but that they've been in the presence of. And they still come to the conclusion, or they ultimately come to the conclusion, that Christians and healing and even Christ himself, God himself, are evil and they've crossed that threshold that the Scripture speaks about here. And I don't know if you've ever come across people like this in your life, those maybe you've um, experienced fellowship with, who at some point in their life, they turn and they say, you know what, I look at all the evil in the world, and I can't believe in, that God is good when I see all this or they look around and they, they come to ultimately that conclusion that 
I can't believe in a God who would X, Y, Z. As they're reading the scripture and they read about the miracles of God that he, he performed to save his people Israel, which often came at the expense of their enemy, and someone looks at that and they, says, they say, how could God do that? He is evil. If, he, if that's true, God is evil and I don't want to believe it. Very similar place. Come to that final conclusion that God and his works are evil. Because ultimately, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so if we're going to talk about are all sins equal, well, that, that is kind of the ultimate sin, is to come to that decision and conclusion in your life. And according to Scripture, there's no going back from that. Once you truly, genuinely cross that threshold. It's one thing to wrestle with and, and kind of argue with God. I mean, that, that's ultimately, that's not a sin, is to wrestle with God and just ask, I don't understand your plan. God, just to be honest, if I were to do it, I would do it this way, but I, I don't understand. But then if your ultimate conclusion is, but thy will be done, not my will. If that's your ultimate conclusion, then that's not talking about you. It is perfectly normal and natural to wonder what God is up to. When your conclusion is that his conclusion is evil, that's where you cross that. But also it's important that we recognize the fact that sins are not equal in the eyes of men. And that not every sin has an equal reaction or equal consequence in life under the sun. Because in life there are certainly different degrees of punishment and consequences that come with the sins that we commit. For example, you might not go to jail for sleeping around, but you can still get an STD, right? Different consequences. Uh, you won't get an STD from gossip, but you can certainly destroy friendships and families. Different consequences. You won't be fired from your job for gluttony, maybe, depends on where you work. But, you'll most certainly live an unhealthy life and you'll wrestle with medical issues the rest of your life. So ultimately, you do reap what you sow. There is earthly uh, reaping from your sins. That doesn't mean it changes your position with God. As a pastor, I've talked to many people who have had a born-again experience and have come to believe in Christ and have changed their life and they're forgiven and they're rejoicing for it, but before they came to Christ, they were living a very seedy lifestyle, doing illegal things, uh, seedy things. And so they come to Christ and months down the road, suddenly a cop comes knocking on their door. Hey, we, we just discovered that you were at this place and you took part in this thing and you're under arrest. And I've seen some people wrestle with that, thinking that, well, I'm born again, I'm saved by God. How, how would he let me be arrested for this? I thought I was forgiven. You still have to pay for what you do. You still read what you do. Your sins will catch up with you here on earth. The good news is that you are now a believer in Jesus Christ. And even if they kill your body for what you've done in the past, they cannot touch your soul. Because Christ has saved you. In fact, you, have, you now have a great opportunity as a born-again man, a changed man, who's now going to prison to preach the gospel to other lost souls, to share with them your story and your testimony. And so, 
Don't be surprised if your sins still have earthly consequences. Because at the end of the day, <clears throat> sins are not equal in the eyes of man. There are different degrees of punishment, and punishment will ultimately still come. They ultimately don't care if you say, I'm a born-again believer now, I've changed. That's nice, but you still need to pay. Still need to pay. And so are all sins equal? Well, in terms of your salvation, um, all sins are equally offensive to God. But the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit when you cross that threshold is unforgivable. All of your sins, God will forgive you. If you repent, if you turn to Him, if you have a genuine faith in Him. And not all sins are equal in the eyes of man, so you need to be aware of that. What about priority when it comes to addressing sin? Because as I just mentioned, there are different degrees, at least in our eyes, of sins and their consequences. I mean, if you murder a whole family, it's different than stealing a stick of gum, is it not? At least in, in our eyes. You look at the egregiousness of the crime. So how do we prioritize talking about sins, addressing sins in people's lives? You know, Are, are there certain sins that, that we should just kind of Weep under the rug and say, well, I hope they kind of figure it out. Or are there sins that need to be addressed right away? I mean, how, what does the Bible say about that? So before we can even consider addressing other people's sins and the sins of the world, we must first begin by addressing our own sin. This is the common problem, I think, in, in all Christians, is that when we think about sin, we tend to think about somebody else who is sinning in that way, but we don't even consider first the fact that maybe we're sinning in that way. I love the, the C.S. Lewis quote. Uh, C.S. Lewis once said, those who do not think about their own sins make up for it by thinking incessantly about the sins of others. And how true is this? I think doing this obviously is a mistake. So I think the priority that we clean house first before we even consider the sins outside our own house. And confronting sin starts with confronting sin. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged. But it doesn't just stop. Because I've heard secular people use that to get the church off their back. Judge not lest ye be judged. Let me go on sinning. Let me go on implementing sinful legislation. Judge not lest you be judged. Yeah, well, the Bible says more than that, okay? Let's look at the full context of that. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What is the end goal of that text? Is that to get you to stop talking to people about sin? No, to get you to address your own sin before you talk to people. Because there's one type of person that Jesus really had a low intolerance for. And that was for the hypocrites. How hypocritical were the Pharisees? Well, 
they were willing to travel from Jerusalem to Capernaum to confront Christ and his disciples because they didn't wash their hands before their meal. That was their biggest crime. And it caused them to travel the distance from Clayton to Coeur d'Alene on foot or on camel or whatever they were riding on to come and say, your disciples aren't washing their hands. Their hygiene is not good enough for the nation of Israel. We are contact tracers, and we are here to tell you that your disciples are not washing their hands. They are breaking our holiness code. You want to know how Jesus responded to them? Did he say, oh, oh yes, you're right, you're right. That's my fault. I, I will correct them. I will tell them to wash their hands from now on. He didn't do anything of the sort. What he did? Turned to those Pharisees and called them out for their own hypocrisy. They said, "You don't even follow your own rules that you have made up for yourselves, and you don't follow God's rules. You are hypocrites." He rebuked them. Jesus had a very low tolerance of hypocrites. My hope for you is that you wouldn't be in that same boat. That you wouldn't feel the intolerance of Christ in your hypocrisy. And so when we're considering sins, we always ought to be looking at sin as if we're being through a mirror. When we're reading the Word of God and we come to a passage that talks about a sin and there's conviction there or anything at all, we need to cross-examine ourselves as if we're looking to a mirror. And really examine ourselves before our mind wanders to, oh, I know that guy. <laughs> he does that worse than anybody. Chance, chances are that that person's sins are a speck compared to the plank coming out of your Really. Because oftentimes we're the most blind to our own sins. We don't see it. And so God is calling for us to really prioritize looking into our own lives and our own actions. So, we need to confront the sins in our own lives. Uh, Romans 7.15 says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I, do not, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very things I hate. It can be a very confusing thing, our sins. And we don't know why we're drawn to certain sins and we have a proclivity towards certain sins. We just... We don't know why. You know, some people made the argument that, well, you're not born that way. You're not born as a sinner. Quite the contrary. In fact, as we covered last week, David says, even from our mother's womb, we are sinners. As soon as we come out, you know, we're, we're prone to sin. We're prone to wander. And not all of us are prone to sin in the same way. As we're going to talk about over the next couple weeks, when people talk about sexual sin and sexual desire, um, it, it's not a sin, initially, to have same-sex attraction. But when you justify that same-sex attraction, and then you act it out, and then you make that your identity and part of your lifestyle, that's when you reach over into sin. And some of you think, well, how can that be? No, same-sex attraction is, is a sin. Let me ask you, men, married men, do you still sometimes wrestle with the lust in your heart for another woman besides your wife? That is the exact same the same sex attraction. Why? Because as married men, we are called to, to suppress 
that attraction. Do not let that attraction dwell and develop into lust and develop into ideas and the desire to act out that lust in our life. But no, we're to suppress that. And as much as we pray to God and say, God, take away that, that, that attraction, take away that, that lust, that temptation, it still remains. And we still have to wrestle with it our entire life. Instead of us justifying that and saying, you know, I'm a lustosexual. And that's just what I do. God made me that way to lust after women. And so that's, that's my lifestyle. That's who I am. I'm a lustosexual. We don't do that. But no. We fight that. And even though we don't understand why it's there, whatever it is, some people are kleptomaniacs and they, they don't know why. They wrestle with that. But even if you don't know why, we are called to still work and wrestle on that, ask God for forgiveness, continue to pray that he'll take that away. But maybe that's the thorn in your side. I think maybe all of us have some kind of a sin temptation, a thorn in our side that we have to wrestle with our whole life and work on our obedience to him, worshiping him over the sin that, that is within but when you do discover that you do have such a proclivity or such a sin, then we must repent. We must work on righteous habits. The refusal to repent from a clearly expressed sin in the Bible is the evidence of an unsaved and an ungrateful heart. 1 John 3.9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. We need to admit our struggles and our shortcomings, not only to ourselves, but to one another. And that's the primary uh, beauty of a church family, especially if, if you're plugged in and you, you build trusting relationships. And you know that each one of us is a sinner saved by grace. We all struggle with our, our sins that we have. If we all come to that conclusion, we build a, a relationship of trust, we should be able to come to each other and to share with each other our struggles and not fear some kind of a hypocritical condemnation, but rather a true understanding. But yeah, I, I don't understand your struggles and it's not the same as mine, but here's where I struggle too. And we work together through our sins. I think some people think, well, confession of sin means I need to come up here in front of everybody and tell them every single dirty detail of that sin. Unless you're an elder, that's not true. The Bible does say that if Brad or I or Jared, if we uh, stumble in, in a big way, then or even a small way, then we are to be made an example of, to be brought in front of the church, to give full confession of sin. And many of you, uh, if you've been here for a long time, you've experienced me confessing my sin from the pulpit. And so, but we should have a body of believers where we feel comfortable enough to confess our sins with understanding. First John uh, 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James 5.16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. 
I have seen God do amazing things in the lives of people who finally come to the realization that I need to declare openly, publicly to another person that I have sinned, that what I have done is a sin. And the beauty of that in a very real uh, um, temporal way is that when you contest your sin, what you're doing is you're telling yourself that that is a sin, that is wrong, and I need to change. And that's what happens when you tell somebody else about it too. That you're telling them knowing that there will now be accountability. That, that's really a step in repentance. It truly is. Because some people think, well, yeah, I, I keep messing up, I keep sinning in this way, but I can just work it out on my own. Nobody else has to know about it. I'll keep it a secret. Come on, friends, you know. You know it doesn't work that way. You know what? Unless you have the help of a fellow believer, somebody you trust, somebody who is gentle and kind and can help you work, maybe even sometimes who will tell you like it is and give you a heavy-handed rebuke, sometimes we need that too. But you know that we need help. We sanctify the Holy Spirit through the church. So I'd encourage you uh, to consider confession of sin. It's not that you go into a little box and some like, you know, faceless priest behind, behind the wall. No, simply a believer that you know has best intentions for you in your faith and your growth. That you can go to. You can trust with that information. Who will pray for you through that information. Who will call you a month later and ask how you're doing. Talk to such a person. It's not something that needs to be known by everybody. Rather, it's something that should be known by somebody. So we need to address our personal sins, and also, if you're in a family, uh, if you're a, a wife, a husband, father, mother, um, we need to also address the sins in our household. We need to not be passive about the sins that exist in our household. Because again, if you can't manage your own house, how can you possibly be expected to manage other people's households? And that falls along the lines of hypocrisy as well. And we like to think that we have our households all in perfect order. Well, I raise my kids better than that person raises their kids. Their kid is really disobedient. Well, it's because they do free-range parenting. Not us. We don't do free-range parenting. We keep our kids in line. And so we are better. Better parents. They need to repent from their bad parenting. Take a look in the mirror at yourself, at your household, and I guarantee you if you're doing it honestly, you will find errors. We are all errored parents. We are all errored husbands and wives. We all have work to do. And so before you go out and start judging all these other families and parents, and judge yourself by the word of God. But then we also need to consider the sins of the church. And we're going to get into this a little bit uh, this week and next week. But 1 Corinthians 5.12, Paul makes the assertion, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So it is our job primarily as elders and as leaders of the church to guard the righteous integrity of our body of believers here. And we are to guide and to lead this local congregation in God's word of truth. We are to teach his word. 
We are to rebuke, we are to correct, we are to train in righteousness so that the person of God can be fully equipped for every good work. Our job is to equip you, not only with the word of God, but also with the word of righteousness. And that is our role. And that is our responsibility. And as long as you are here with us and you are entrusting us with that role, that is our goal is to do that and to do it hopefully well. That also means that we as elders are supposed to be living above reproach. That is, after all, the qualification of an elder. Meaning that we ought to be those who you look to as examples, those who are living righteous lives. Which is why the penalty or the punishment for our slip-ups, or big slip-ups, is so public and so harsh. So confronting sin does not only belong to elders in the church, it's the responsibility of, of every believer. I mean, after all, who's going to hold us accountable? You are. You're going to hold us accountable. We're going to hold you accountable. That's how family works. As a parent, um, there are multiple times where our children will remind us to watch our language or to remind us to stop fighting so much, right? And if you're an authoritarian, which we all claim to hate, with the whole authoritarian, totalitarian mindset, um, then you would quickly tell them to shut up. Children should be seen, not heard. You be quiet. You don't tell me what I can and cannot do. Well, guess what? You're taking your kids to church. You're teaching them the principles of Scripture. And what do you think they're going to do when the Holy Spirit within them is telling you, hey, hey, Dad, remember how you tell me all the time that I should watch my language or you know, I should um, not speak so coarsely or tell gross jokes? Um, Dad, you shouldn't be doing that either. In a family, <laughs> it reciprocates. Same thing in a church. Just because we're elders doesn't mean we're some authoritarians that we cannot be approached, we cannot be reviewed, or corrected, and trained. And there, there's a lot of different other things that go along with that, but we are inviting you, so long as you have a legitimate faith, to come and confront us but also the Bible says don't bring an accusation unless there's two or three witnesses against an elder. So, I mean, you better make sure it's legitimate, not just like, uh, you can knock them down a few pegs, something's coming. How did we do this? I mean, people do. But we need to address the sins in the church, not as authoritarians, not as hypocrites, but as people who genuinely care about each other. Because imagine what we could do if we were really dedicated to Christ's righteousness and his kingdom come. If all of us here were mutually driven in that regard, imagine what God could do to us. I mean, there's no end, there's no ceiling to what God would do to us if we were committed to that end together. And that should be the goal. That should be the goal. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Sanctification, edification are not just uh, a principle or a mechanism that works within the church, but it works in other areas as well. 
uh, found in, in uh, exercise and dieting, it's really good to have other people on that journey with you, right? I mean, uh, I, the most growth I've ever had as far as physical fitness and things is when I'm doing it in a group or with a, a brother, and, and we're pushing each other. And you know what? That pushing is painful, right? It's often painful. I'm like, man, I'm hurting today. My glutes, ah! Right? It's the same way in Christianity. Sometimes sanctification, edification is painful. Because who wants to be told you're doing it right? Who wants to be told, yeah, you're kind of messing up? Nobody. We all like to think of ourselves as gods who have it all figured out. We make the rules, we do it right, we don't need to be told what to do. And so when you enter into a church relationship, you are making yourselves vulnerable to the fact that you might not be perfect. And we're a group committed to helping encourage each other to grow in all of these areas, whether your roots are spiritual or physical. We want to help you grow and get to the place you need to be. Then only after looking at ourselves and looking at the church, then should our attention be on the world. Because after all, if we go out into the world and we start preaching righteousness to people who don't even believe in God, or don't even believe in the Bible, trying to leverage them with something they don't even believe in, before we go out and start doing that, shouldn't we have ourselves in order first? Because hypocrisy is a killer of the testimony. The first thing that kills the testimony, ruins the testimony. Not to say that we're perfect, but at least we should have our ducks in a row when it comes to things that we're doing, habits that we're doing. But when it comes to the sins of the world, it's perfectly normal and natural for the believer to hate the sins that we see. If you didn't hate the sins that you saw, then I think there's probably something wrong with you. Because as believers, we know that we learned from last week that God hates sin. Why does it why does he hate sin? Because sin corrupts his creation. When he created all that we see, including us, he created it and it was very good and perfect. Then when sin entered in, it corrupted the relationship, it corrupted us who were made in his image and after his likeness, and it corrupted the world, even the sand and the rock. It corrupted everything. So God hates it. Because sin corrupts, destroys, brings death, brings separation. God hates it, so should we. So we certainly don't affirm or we don't celebrate the sins of the world. And the Bible indicates that ultimately it's not our place to judge the world. Because again, how can we at all hold them accountable to something they don't believe in? It doesn't make sense. But we can tell them the truth of Scripture. And we can do it in a Christ-like way. Can't just ignore sin. Proverbs fourteen thirty four says, "Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people." If you care about this country, as many of us claim we do, and we ought to care about the moral fabric of this country. We ought to be praying for people to be born again and come to a place of righteousness, and to care about the morals and the ethics within their own households within their communities, their states, and this country. Because we know that a country who, who turns to Christ is a country that thrives in Christ. It 
Christians, we turn away from God. As we're seeing, that blessing is removed. It's that way throughout Israel's history. I'm finding it's that way throughout even Gentile nations. Acts 7.52 says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. See, we need to be prepared when we go out in the world, we start preaching the truth of Christ, we start preaching righteousness, uh, start making people aware of their sin and the fact and death and decay. We need to be prepared that just as they crucified Christ, they will also crucify us. They will hate us. They will hate us for being truth there. And we're imperfect. Christ was perfect. Again, the perfect man. And they took him and they killed him. So how can we expect anything else? And so if you're not prepared for that end, if you think, well, if they attack me, then I'm going to start shooting. If your genuine heart is for what matters most in their life, your genuine heart is for their soul. And if God gave you insight into, into the fact that if you allow those people to rescue and kill you and martyr you for your faith in God, then that will explode into a hundred new believers. If you came into that mysterious insight, future insight, would you be prepared to do that? To take their souls? Even though it's totally wrong that they're coming after you and killing you? Um, Jared, in prayer meeting this morning, shared a story about how Christians in Afghanistan, some of them had the opportunity to get out, and they said, no, this is our mission field we're called if that means that we die by torture, by death, and so be. Because our hearts and our calling are here. Get to that point in your life. You go out into the world and you say, even if it costs me everything, I'm going to go preach the love and the truth of Christ. If you're not there, I'd encourage you to be careful about how you engage in the world on those matters. And the way that we engage with the world is just as Christ did, through loving truthfulness. And I think we ought to be bold about sharing the truth of the gospel. But as I said, we could ruin the testimony by the tone and the delivery of that gospel. And this is why Scripture instructs us in 2 Timothy 2, 23-26, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I think the, the part of that text that sticks out to me the most is patiently enduring evil. Any of you at the breaking point of losing your patience with the evil that you see in the world these days? I'm wrestling with my anger myself. I'm really just feeling that anger come up in the flesh inside of me, wanting to pick up my gun and charge that hill and make a difference. To fight evil on the battlefield. That's, that's the anger in the flesh inside of me that's growing. And I really have to temper that. And God gave me 
this text as a, as a way to rein me in and to remind me of my call. God has called me to be his servant, to serve his purpose, carry out the great commission. That includes patiently enduring evil. Why? Hopefully, I've come to a place of repentance through that patience. That's my end goal. To see a person saved, turn from their sin and turn to Christ and be saved. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, and some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And likewise, Ephesians 4.15 says, We are to speak the truth in love. God wants us to boldly speak the truth, but how you say it matters. And we're not going to get the gospel across through satire. Yeah, satire is funny and it makes people who believe a certain way laugh and feel vindicated. But as far as the gospel is concerned, we're going to get it through truth, love, gentleness, patience, enduring evil, enduring the insult. If you're a true believer, your goal is their soul. It's not to win an argument. Your goal is their soul. And when people ask, we need to be ready to give an answer. That means we need to be in our words, studying, praying, day and night, ready to give an answer to any who might ask. Because you know what? If you live your life this way, the way the Bible teaches us to, then people will come to you. People will know that you're a person who can be trusted to tell them the truth about the gospel. That you don't have any other ulterior motives. You're not looking to win political points, but rather you want to just give them the gospel because you love them and you care about them. In uh, one of the coffee shops I like to frequent, there's a group of good old boys who uh, hangs out there and oftentimes even on Sunday morning. They're in there. If I go in to get a coffee before I come here, they're, they're in there hanging out. And uh, they've come to know me as a preacher. Every time I come in, they're like, Hey, preacher! And as I've talked to them a little bit more, I've, I've come to realize that really none of them believe. Because uh, one time I asked them, you know, do you think God is good? Nobody would answer that. Oh, okay. That topic is for a different I've built a relationship with them over the years. And if that situation is anything like I've experienced in the past, when you do that, if any one of these men, they ever seriously want to inquire about the gospel, about Jesus. Maybe they're uh, they're working through a death of the family and, and God is really touching their heart and they need a resource. One of these days, maybe when I come into the coffee shop and say, hey, preacher, I have a question. Why? Because they know that they can talk to you. They know that I don't have any strange angles. I'm just sincere in my care for them and wanting to deliver the truth. And so God calls us to be ready in that way. Treat people in that way. To be ready to give an answer. First Peter 3.15 In your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I mean, it's all over the Bible, people. 
And you know what? Your Facebook account, the things that you post online, it's no different. Just because it's digital doesn't make it right. That is the public forum, that is the public square of today. Before the internet, before all that stuff, when people got together at the city gates and they got together in public forums and they were, they were speaking with, with one another, this scripture was addressed to them. To do, to do these things, to give an answer for your faith with gentleness and respect, to endure evil. It had to do with face-to-face, but I tell you it also has to do with your online interaction. Because what are you doing? You're, you are sharing a message in a public sector where other people, believers, non-believers, can hear and see. This guy has Christian all over his, his account. He's quoting scripture. And over here, he's calling Biden a freaking idiot. I mean, people are watching. People are watching the way you handle this. And if you ever want people to come to you as a resource for Christ, we need to be living it out everywhere we are, whether it's online or in person. The last, last section I want to cover, and then I guess we're going to have to save, run out of time, I'm going to have to save uh, the full list for next week, maybe even longer. Again, I'm, I'm on God's time, and so I'm just trying to, to be faithful to Him. Uh, I, I feel like a salesman, though. Oh, but next week... Here comes the list. If you just come back next week, honestly, I'm not trying to do that. I'm on God's time. Um, but the last section I want to talk about before we close here is the fact that not all sin lists are comprehensive. When you go through the New Testament, you'll often find, especially in Paul's letters, he, he kind of goes on a uh, um, um, listing out certain sins throughout the Bible. And I have some of those examples up here. But you'll find that between these lists, they're not always comprehensive. They're not always the same. Sometimes they have overlap, and sometimes they vary. And the biggest reason for this is because when the Bible authors, through the Holy Spirit, were writing letters to actual churches that existed in actual cultures with actual things that they did, they were writing to address the sins that they struggled with. For example, when we start the book of uh, 1 Corinthians in October, you're going to find that the church at Corinth struggled with a lot more and different sins than like the church at Ephesus. And so that's why Paul addresses Corinth on some of these specific items, whereas in Ephesus, he doesn't. And we go through these lists of sins, uh, it's important for me to note that the sin list that I compiled that we're going to walk through together starting next week, uh, this, these are sins that, as I have received and worked with people throughout the years, that I see have become major problems in our society and oftentimes in our church as well. So starting next week, we're going to walk through that list. It's not going to be a comprehensive list. It's not going to cover every single sin but it's going to cover the ones that I think we at Clank Community Church need to hear, we need to repent from, and that we also need to be aware of so that when we go out into the world, we know how to address people gently and with the truth. Because the biggest reason why people...
come across as harsh or feel like they have to be louder or strong-arm is out of ignorance. People who are in ignorance and don't really know what they're talking about, their only defense in an argument is to get loud and to become a bull, to say a rude thing, ad hominem, just to start calling people names. And we don't want to be that way. As Christians, we want to speak the truth, we want to speak it gently, and correctly, and patiently. And in order to do that, we need to be informed of the truth. So I'm sorry if you are uh, disappointed we didn't get to that list. Uh, it is 12 o'clock, though, and I know uh, our attention span is short, so I want to honor your attention. And so next week, the preliminaries are out of the way. Training wheels are coming off. I'm just going to start from the very beginning, and I'll give you a little sneak peek. Um, the number one sin on my list is pride. And a couple of pride. Other lists, uh, or other parts of the list will include drunkenness. We're going to talk a little bit about marriage and divorce. We're going to talk about uh, sexual perversion. We're going to talk about racism in as much as it has to deal with uh, these new progressive movements that are working through the church, such as woke ideology, things like that. They say they're anti-racist. They're actually very racist. We need to talk about that. So uh, nothing is off the table. We're also going to talk about egalitarianism, which has also infiltrated the church. One of these is going to make you really mad. It's going to make your flesh really mad, I guarantee you. So I encourage you to come next week. Let's get mad together. Let's work through it. Let's come to an understanding of the truth. Let's be sanctified. Let's be edified. Let's start that conversation together. But in the meantime, my friends, God is with you. He loves you. If you believe in him, you have eternal security in heaven with him. If somebody kills you, they can't kill your soul. So have confidence. Trust in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this precious time we get together. I think the longer we're here, the more we recognize that life is fragile. And we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. So help us to count our days. Help us to appreciate this one that we have. Help us to appreciate our family, our wives, our husbands, our kids, our church family, our friends. Help us to appreciate our neighbors and not take this time for granted. Let us pursue righteousness together. Let us seek your faith together. God, show us how to do that day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. Thank you for